Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Who the Heck is This Guy podcast with Akiva Weisinger, in which we explore the Jewish library and talk about who these people are that you're supposed to uh, read their stuff and know about. Uh, so the first, you know, actual person we're going to talk about instead of a general introduction to biblical commentary is going to be Rashi. So to start off, I would like to ask you to think about the following question. I mean, we've been talking a lot about what commentary is supposed to accomplish, what biblical commentary is supposed to ac accomplish, but what is the job of a commentator on, on the Bible? Well, let's think about the way that we use the word commentator elsewhere. Uh, the thing that comes to mind is a sports commentator. You know, the guy who's talking as the game is going on. Uh, you know, sometimes a girl, but a lot of times a guy. And there's two commentators. One is a, uh, you know, play-by-play -play who's telling you what's going on. And there's a color commentator who's telling you, uh, you know, things about what's going on and giving you uh, broader context. So I think using that example, the job of a biblical, what a biblical commentator does is explain difficulties in the biblical text, uh, explain, answer questions that you would have had, and to, uh, and to tell you what's going on, the play-by-play -play commentary, and a color commentary to provide, you know, background and stuff that you otherwise wouldn't have known to uh, explain the biblical text. That is a job of a commentator. Why do we need commentary? Because the Torah is written in a language sometimes that was not understood, or you know it has a bunch of you know uh, uh, unclear things and contradictions and all those sorts of things that need explanation. So we need the job of a commentator. Uh, so what are the, I guess what a commentator does is sort of be a textual teacher. What I mean by textual teacher is a, you know, teacher who only exists in the text. Not everybody has a chance to go out and, you know, find somebody who can explain to them all the, you know, all, all the difficulties in the text. So somebody writes down a commentary so that if you have any difficulties in the text, you know, somebody's there to tell you. Let's, so let's, I think what we're saying is a commentator is a teacher, Okay. To my mind, there is no greater teacher in the Jewish tradition than Rashi. I'll tell you what I mean by that. We don't know that much about Rashi's personality uh, but from contemporary accounts. We don't know, you know, uh, people who interacted with him so much, at least as far as my research has gone. And probably, you know, some guy may be listening to this like, actually, I have done research and I, we have found, like, you know, Rashi was very grumpy all the time. But I doubt it, because Rashi is there on the text, uh, just, he, you can tell he's just a patient teacher trying to help you along to understand what's going on. He, the, the biggest example of, that, of this, of, you know, how we know that Rashi was a good teacher, is um, the first source I put on this source sheet is... Um, you know, there's a difficulty in the text. Uh, you know, uh, the pasuk says uh, that 
uh, Rivka uh, at the end of uh, Parsha's uh, Vayeshev when uh, you know Yaakov has taken the, the blessing of his father and Esav's very mad and uh, they tell Yaakov to go run away to uh, you know Charan or uh, whatever um, it says in Rivka it mentions Rivka and it says aim Yaakov Esav the mother of Yaakov and Esav so the question is like why does he need to tell us now I think we've gotten that point and you might say, well, she was still the mother of both of them. But Rashi there is, says something curious. He says, uh, I don't know. I don't know. He says, uh, I do not know what the addition of any Odea Milam Denu. I don't know what this teaches us. So the obvious question on this is why tell us? What, what are you telling us by telling us you don't know? Do we expect... Do, Rashi is a pretty comprehensive commentator, but he doesn't commentate, uh, commentate. That is a silly word. He doesn't comment on literally everything, right? Speaking of which, my least favorite joke of all time is that joke which happen, uh, which people say, like, you know, Rashi is, uh, his wife is asking uh, how to, uh, you know, if this dress is good, and Rashi comments on this, and then uh, Rashi, the punchline is like, Rashi's wife says, do you have to comment on everything? That's not a joke, guys. That's just, you know, a statement of his job as a commentator. And has nothing to do with, you know, what he was doing at that very moment. It's like and it's like a, having a punchline for a joke that's like, uh, you know, a truck driver's wife, blah, blah, blah. And like, why don't you drive a truck? Ha, ha, ha. It's not a punchline. It's my least favorite joke ever. I will judge you if you make that joke. Okay, so Rashi doesn't necessarily comment on everything. So why is he telling us, I don't know what's going on here? Because as any teacher will tell you, one thing that you need to do as a teacher is to, to let your students know that you're asking a good question even when you don't know the answer. Um, like if, you know, if a student asks a good question, you don't know the answer, um, you, it's worthwhile not to just say i don't know but to recognize uh recognize the validity of the question by going and saying i don't know what's going on here i don't know you know what to tell you uh he's not just saying i don't know he's also saying but you're asking good you're asking a good question on the text so and it, this is—he does this constantly. He does this constantly, especially when you get to Gemara, like when you're reading a Mishnah, and uh, he'll say, um, and you don't know what this Mishnah could mean. You look at Rashi, and he says, "Look, I'm on Mefarish. It'll explain it later on. Trust me. There's just just be patient." Uh, he'll. So you know the title Rashi stands for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki. Uh, that was his name. Uh, Rabbi Shlomo, son of Yitzchak. Does, Yitzchak, he doesn't mean son of Yitzchak, but maybe they made the uh, uh, made the abbreviation to make sense. I don't know. Um, but people, uh, it's said that it really stands for Rabban Shel Yisrael, teacher of Israel. And I think that is correct. He is, you know, the teacher of Israel. So he is, you know, the best teacher in the Jewish tradition. He's patient, he's humble, he recognizes that you're asking good, good questions. You can tell that he was a good dude. Let's put it that way. So let's say a little bit about his background. 
Rashi, and then we'll get into like the methodology of what he does. So Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, whose name is Rashi, was born, who's, you know, who we know as Rashi, was born in uh, Troyes, France. I am probably mispronouncing Troyes because French is weird. Um, in 1040, to a mostly non-rabbinic family. Uh, at 17, he goes to a yeshiva in Worms, which is in Germany uh, now, I believe, and he studied there and in Mainz until he was 25. Um, these were yeshiva in the tradition and orbit of Rabbeinu Gershom and Eliezer Agadol, who were the acknowledged religious authorities of Ashkenazi Jewry. Um, and Rashi's interpretations of Gemara and in Tanakh are working within that tradition. In other words, Rashi's not just making stuff up. He's saying, this is what I heard, this is how my teachers explained it to me. Um, after leaving Yeshiva, he returns to Troyes, he returns to his hometown. He is immediately made the head of the basin and the most trusted halakhic authority. Um, which emphasizes how impressive he was to the community. At 25, I am 27. Um, and, you know, I've done some cool stuff in my life, but I don't go walk into a community and they immediately make me, uh, you know, the head of the base in and the most trusted halakhic authority. Um, especially, and this is especially true considering his lack of rabbinic pedigree. He does, doesn't come from a rabbinic family. He doesn't have this, uh, you know, he doesn't have connections. He's just this guy that comes out of seemingly nowhere. And he's just super impressive. Um, he founds the yeshiva and it becomes famous throughout Europe. Um, and we'll see that uh, that'll have you know, great historical significance, but continuing on. Um, he, writes, he wrote extensive and innovative commentaries on Tanakh and Gemara. We're going to focus on Tanakh here, on his commentaries on Tanakh. Uh, but, you know, his, his commentary on Gemara is also a masterpiece. Uh, he also writes some chuvot. Uh, he, write, he answers some responsa, as it's called in English, uh, answers halachic questions, which we have record of, and some piyutim. And he writes some, you know, po poetry. Uh, some of, uh, in fact, uh, because he survived the pogroms associated with the Crusades, and he wrote uh, keynote, which are, uh, lamentations, I guess is the word for it. Uh, you know, sad poems that we read on Tisha B'Av. Um, some of our knowledge of what the Crusades, what the Crusade programs were like, come from Rashi's accounts from his piyutim. Um, he died in 1105 in Troy. Troy, Tra? I don't, I don't know. Um, he had no sons, uh, but his daughters all married rabbis. Uh, there's a legend out there that his daughters uh, were tefillin. I have no idea if that is true or not. Um, the only time I saw like whether that was true or not addressed, it it, it was in like uh, the the pages of Jewish Action Magazine, which is from the OU, and it did not address any historical data. Instead, it was like, well, here's the halachos, and see, uh, woman can't wear tefillin according to halacha, therefore Rashi's daughters didn't. That's not an answer. Uh, I'm inclined to say that that's not the kind of thing you make up, but uh, I'm open to be, be, being proven wrong uh, because people like to read their uh, own narratives into history. Well, whatever. Uh, his daughters marry rabbis, and his descendants become the uh, Bali Hatosos, the uh, people who wrote the Tosef 
Tosafot commentary and Gemara, the Tosafists, as they're called. Um, one daughter in particular um, had three sons, all of which are um, became, you know, very well known. Uh, Rashbam, who we're going to talk about next week, uh, Rabbeinu Tam, who basically ruled Ashkenaz with an iron fist for the entirety of his life, and Rivan, who was also cool. Um, it's really Rashbam and Rabbeinu Tam, and Rivan was also pretty cool. Um, and, yeah, so this guy who came out of nowhere, uh, this guy who didn't have a rabbinic family, his descendants, his grandchildren, basically become the rabbinic aristocracy. Um, being related to Rashi is, you know, seen as an, uh, seen as you know the prerequisite for being somebody for like the next like three hundred years or so. Um, you know, we already typically I would you know I'll continue with somebody's personality, but we already address his personality. Um, so let's let's talk about his methodology. Okay, we talked about last time. We talked about how. A uh, typical commentator has to, you know, decide on uh, has to decide on a number of factors when they're coming into their commentary. To what extent? I'm, the first one is uh, to what extent am I going uh, textual ver- independence versus traditional text? Uh, the degree to which a given commentator sees a biblical text as an independent work, or one that can only be understood in the context of the oral tradition. So, in a word, how much do they use Midrashim? Use the, uh, you know, exegesis of, of, the, rab- of the rabbinic sages, uh, which is especially important considering that, you know, we rely on that, uh, on Drash as the basis of our halachic system. So Rashi is, in that respect, he's very much uh, traditional, uh, uh, a believer in the traditional text. Um, very much a believer in Midrashim. However, that does not mean, and I, I, I stress this because people will go, Rashi is just Drash. Rashi is just Medrash. That's not true. And take him at his own word when he says that because his understanding of what the Pshat is is going to be mediated by Midrashim, but it's still addressing the Pshat. Let's look at you know the second source I put in this uh, source sheet which is the closest we get to Rashi making a programmatic statement about what he's trying to accomplish. Um, this is about you know, Gan Eden or you know, something of that sort. I don't, don't remember the context exactly. Um, so Rashi comments there, Yesh Midrashi Agada Rabim, Ukfar Sidrum Rabusenu Al-Mechonam B'Bereshis Rabba, Uvashar Midrashas. There are many Midrashic explanations of you know, this Pasuk and you know, in general. There's a lot of Midrash out there. And our teachers have collected them in, you know, Beratius Rabba and various other collections, some of which are actually still being compiled at the time that Rashi is, uh, Rashi is writing this, uh, from my, at least from my recollection. I'm open to be, being proven wrong on that. Um, so there's a lot of Midrashim out there. They're collected in all these uh, things. Vani lo basi el shel mikra ula agada hamikra davar davor al afanav. I, however, am only concerned with the plain sense of scripture and with such a gadot, uh, such midrashim, a gadot, uh, that explain the words of scripture in a manner that fits with them. So Rashi's telling you, don't confuse me for a midrashic, you know, uh, uh, 
don't confuse me for a medrash. I'm coming to explain the plain sense of this scripture. I am coming to, you know, explain the text as it says. However, I'm going to use midrashim to explain that text. Let me translate that into plain English. Rashi sees a problem with a pasuk. Other commentators might go, well, according to you know philology, uh, you know my uh, you know research or into philology or you know uh, based on other things, uh, this is I think the pshat of the, and based on you know my own uh, understanding, this is the pshat of the pasuk. Rashi Rashi wants to answer questions on the pasuk with midrash Chazal. There is, a, in other words, there are some there are a lot of midrashim. Some don't fit into the text. Some do fit into the text. Some kind of fit into the text. And Rashi's looking to find the midrashim that f- make the text make sense. And this is a key point to understand about midrashim. A lot of the, like, you know, some of them are wild out there and, you know, not in the pasuk at all, not in the pasukim at all. And some of them are, you know, very clearly attempts at biblical interpretation themselves. So Rashi's not completely, you know, wrong here. He's trying, he, and... There's a lot of merit to the idea that he wants Torsha Balped, Torsha Basav to be a continuum. Uh, let me give you an example of the kind of interpretation that Rashi does, and we'll look at the next source. Okay, so uh, this is Yaakov fleeing. We mentioned before Yaakov fleeing Esav. Okay, he leaves and uh, he gets to a place and he wants to stay the night. Um, and he took from the stones of the place, Vayasa Mirashosav, and he placed them Mirashosav. Unclear how that's being translated. Um, it's the translation that's listed on this on Sfaria says, and he put he take took one of the stones of that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. That's already an inter- interpretation, one of the reasons you shouldn't necessarily trust translations. Um, so basically, he takes from the stones in the area, he puts them Merashosav somewhere. Uh, he puts either them or one of them uh, near his head. Uh, we see the word Rosh in there. Okay. Um, so Rashi comments on that first pasuk over there. Um, so what does Mayurashosav mean, according to Rashi? He arranged them in the form of a drain pipe around his head for he's afraid of wild beasts. Um, he, you know, takes the stones, he puts them around uh, around him. They're like, you know, uh, they're sort of, um, you know, protecting him from wild beasts. I don't know how that works necessarily. I don't know what, you know, a uh, mountain lion is going to see, uh, you know, going to see a guy you know, lying in the field and go, uh, oh, wait, there's some rocks there. I'm sorry. Whatever. Slush and her about the office. I, I don't know. Um, but, and which you'll note, the Safari translation points out, is a Rashi, is a Medrash, sorry, is a Medrash. He's quoting a Medrash. And then he quotes this strange Medrash. The stones began quarreling with each other. One says... Upon me, let this righteous man rest his head. Another says, upon me, let him rest it. They're fighting about who gets to be the pillow. Um, because Yaakov's very righteous. They want to be associated. Rocks want to be associated, uh, associated with Yaakov because he rocks. Yeah, I deserve I deserve that groan. I, I deserve it. Okay. Um, whereupon the Holy One, blessed he, straightaway made them into one stone. 
So there's all these rocks uh, that Yaakov, you know, put as a barrier for wild beasts. Uh, they start arguing, and then uh, Hashem merges them into one stone. This is, you know, obviously some sort of crazy medrash that Rashi is, you know, reading against the plain sense of the scripture, which obviously can't be some fantastical thing, um, right? But if you look at what he follows up with, he says, "Vizehu evan asher sum that explains what it means. He took the stone that was asher sum meirashosav that he put uh, under his under his head. We're going to go go ahead and translate it under his head. Okay, uh, that's from later on in that same parak. When Yaakov wakes up, he has his dream with la- angels and ladders. You've heard of it, right? Um, he takes the rock that's under his head. The way that Rashi is reading this is that before we had a bunch of rocks. And now the Pasuk is telling us there's one rock. What happened in the meantime? Now, if you're somebody like Rashbam, his grandson, you go, well, when it says, when he took from the stones, it says he took one stone. Then Rashi might say, okay, why does it need to tell us that it's, you know, from the stones in the area? Um, So according to Rashi, it means he took a bunch of stones. And then the Pasuk over there says uh, there was one stone. Something happened in the interim. There's a metrish about them quarreling uh, about the stones, you know, fighting with each other, whether uh, who gets to sleep under Yaakov's head. That seems to explain the problem here. Why not put that in my commentary? That's how Rashi works. He's 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 trying to find midrashim that explain problems in the text, and that goes back to what I told you told you before about you know Rashi saying I don't know. He's saying, that is a problem in the text I would like to address with the Medrash, but I haven't found one that quite does it. He's there, Rashi is solving textual problems. If I get one thing through to you in this entire podcast, know this. Rashi is solving textual problems. If you see a Rashi and you see him, you see him comment, ask yourself, what question is he answering? Look at the text and try to figure out what, que- what problem led him, to, uh, led him to quote this Medrash, to solve this problem. That's how you should read Rashi. Don't read Rashi as, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, mystical person who is confusing us with, you know, this fantastical world of Medrashim. No, Rashi wants the Pshat. He wants the Pshat just as much as anyone else. But he just has a different conception of pshat, and that's one of the reasons why I, in my first introductory podcast, I, you know, specifically didn't use pshat and drash because, according to other people, Rashi's method of pshat is drash. According to Rashi, it's pshat. This leads to uh, Rashi having very interesting sort of uh, sort of met- methods or sort of conclusions. Okay. Because if you're using... Mitrashim have a way of reading the text not as, you know, um, literally on the page, but taking into account other things. It almost gets to the point where it's literary readings of, of, you know, Pasuk in general, of, you know, the Torah in general. Uh, Midrash detects themes. Midrash detects, you know, uh, usage of words that connect with each other. And Rashi, through his understanding of med- through his you know uh, uh, love of Medrash, I don't know love of Medrash, I don't know his use of Medrash, yeah, 
um, will sometimes clue on to something, okay? Uh, I'll give you this example. Um, Gor Arye, uh, this is when Yaakov is uh, blessing the uh, brother, uh, the, the tribes after, uh, uh, right before he's going to, to pass away. And this is the Berkeley Gibson of Yehuda. Gor Arye Yehuda, Miteref Bani Elisa, Kara Ravatska Arye, Chalavi Mi Kamenu. Judah is a lion's whelp. I have never heard the term whelp ever used to describe a lion, but cool. Okay, I guess that means a lion's son. I don't know. Um, on prey, my son, have you grown? Uh, he crouches, lies down like a lion, like the king of beasts who dare rouse him. That sounds very cool. Um, Judah's a lion. That's pretty cool. Um, but no, let's think about this a second, okay? Yehuda was responsible for selling Yosef. In a, uh, you know, let's not kill him, let's sell him. Maybe he, you know, reduced the harm there. But he's still responsible for that. And what does, what do the brothers tell Yaakov when they, uh, you know, try to convince him that he's that he's dead? They, you know, dip the, the multicolored or whatever kind of coat into blood, into goat's blood, and they say, Torof Taraf Yosef. Uh, you know, Yosef has been torn apart by a wild animal. What word appears in this in this pasuk? Miteref bini Alisa. The word teref is there, and then it's right next to bini. Now, the pshat of this pasuk is very clear. He is blessing Yehuda. In fact, Rashi comments before that that uh, you know Shimon and Levi got uh, Shimon and Levi got uh, Reuven Shimon and Levi got bashed in the, the in the previous pasuk, and Yehuda was sort of nervous to come forward, and then uh, uh, Yaakov's like, no, 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 you're cool. But does that mean that, that you know, he still forget that, you know, he's forgotten about what Yehuda is responsible for? Rashi picks up on this. Miteref. Uh, Raji picks up on the use of the word tariff in this the context of this uh, in the context of that uh, pasuk about Yehuda. Right? So it's clear that like, you know, on a shot one thing I, I like uh, an idea I like from Ryako Kamineski and uh, also it's appeared in Rufutner, is that Pshat, Drash, and all that may describe levels of reality as well. There's a there's a apparent level of reality, the things that we see, and then there may be, you know, the psychological worlds within us uh, and, you know, things under the surface. And Rashi's methodology of using Medrash or, you know, going beyond beyond just the words on the page uh, can clue us into some, you know, interesting psychological insights into what's going on in the psukim. And his, uh, the sensitivity to text that he has allow, and you know, allows him to do that. So I think that's cool. Um, so let's look at, you know, our criteria for evaluating biblical commentators. And, you know, I'll fill in the, uh, you know, gaps that I've missed because I just sort of 
started talking about Rashi and, you know, sort of went off the page and whatever. Um, textual independence versus tradition, traditional text. The degree to which a given commentator sees a biblical text as independent work and one that can only be understood in the context of the oral tradition. Very much towards traditional text. Though you might argue that the fact that he's even interpreting, he's even trying to solve problems in the text rather than just learning Medrash means that he's starting the process of beginning to see the uh, text as uh, independent. I've thought about that. I've played with like turning that into a thing. Eh. Literal meaning versus symbolic meaning. Uh, the degree to which a given commentator sees the text as being meant to be understood on a literal level being, uh, versus being understood or representing something beyond the text, such as Kabbalistic or philosophical ideas. Mostly he's inclined towards the literal meaning, but because his, uh, he uses measures, it's sometimes, as I showed in that last example, uh, can suss out the symbolic meanings as well. Um, he he's not you know a, he's not uh, he he will often like find uh, you know symbolic uh, meanings so he's sort he's towards symbolic meaning but his his uh, main focus is trying to tell you what happened uh, rational and you know just in terms of whether he. Uh, Let's, let's go to the next one. Rational re, uh, reinterpretation versus unmediated text. The degree to which a given commentator is willing to reinterpret text to better align with... Uh, I updated this. I'm reading from an old one. Uh, it's reinterpretation, uh, reinterpreted text versus unmediated text. Um, like, the degree to which you're willing to read the words on the page uh, ver, uh, versus you have to make them make sense with something else like philosophy or Kabbalah or something like that. Um, Rashi's kind of notorious for not caring about rational reinterpretation, uh, not caring about, uh, you know, reinterpreting in light of rationality. There's an open discussion as to whether he believed that God had a body because he doesn't seem to shy away from that in the psukim, in his commentary sometimes, and it's a great to how far he took that, but there's some, you know, doesn't reinterpret for rationality, doesn't reinterpret. He, he's on the page kind of guy. Linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic contextualism. The degree to which a given biblical commentator is inclined to see every word is worthy of reinterpretation versus allowing words to be understood in the context of natural speech, which is especially relevant for poetry. Uh, Rashi's one of the people most towards linguistic omnisignificance. Between Rashi and Malbim, basically, uh, everybody interprets poetry as you use one word, you use a similar word, don't read so much into it. Rashi will read into it. And Rashi will... Rashi assumes that everything is meant to tell you something and that there's no superflu superfluous words. There's no... Which, to be fair, it's the assumption of a lot of commentary, but he, he like in that last example, the fact that he sees that in the word Torah uh, is an example of you know how he's careful on every word. The fact that he's careful on every word, by the way, means that that's how you should read Rashi as well. Uh, he's careful about every word he uses as well. So, you know, I, this becomes like sort of a cottage industry sometimes of like really going way past whatever Rashi would probably meant to say. But 
He's one of the people in the Jewish tradition that you should read closely. On the page versus by the book, the degree to which a given biblical commentator interprets what's in front of them in isolation versus in terms of the entirety of scripture, whether they're trying to make it make sense with other things. This I'm not so sure about, I'll be honest, uh, because I found places where Rashi will interpret things based on what's in front of him and not care about other places. And with that last example, we saw that he's you know paying attention to other places as well. So he's somewhere in the middle. Um, if people want to write in and, you know, give me better, uh, you know, sources on that, feel free. Um, so the last question I would like to answer in any of these podcasts is when should I use this source? Um, you know, knowing what the source does is half the battle. It's when I'm, you know, writing a Dvar Torah or whether, or when I'm like reading a Pasuk and I have a question on the Pasuk, uh, which sources am I going to use and why? So when do I use Rashi? Well, the important thing to know about Rashi is that he won all the commentator battles. Uh, every version of uh, pretty much every version of Chumash that you see uh, will have Rashi in it, despite whether it has other commentaries or not. Um, the decision to not include Rashi is itself an ideological decision. That's like a decision you have to make. Uh, the version of the Torah that most Orthodox Jews know and most liberal denominations also, I've, I have found, is the one that Rashi describes. Uh, we've sort of like, and you know, some people will say this is, you know, evidence of our broken educational system, but fact is uh, most Orthodox Jews would not be able to tell the difference between uh, you know, something that Rashi, only Rashi imputes into the text versus what it's actually in the text. Whether or not this is good or bad, I'm not weighing in on that, but there's there's a lot... Rashi's very culturally important. So if you want to understand what everybody's talking about all the time, and, you know, I'm reading the Chumash, and uh, other people are saying this happened, and I don't see it in the Chumash, check Rashi. It's probably there. Um, that's, you know, a sort of somewhat cynical... Uh, sort of view as to when you would use Rashi. Uh, the other t time you'd use Rashi is when you want to know what Chazal, what the uh, rabbis thought about this Basuk. And, you know, that's not just a, you know, he's not just an index of, you know, rabbinic thought. Um, he'll, it's important to be able to understand, like, when Chazal interpret a Pasuk um, that seemingly goes against the, uh, you know, plain meaning of the Pasuk in order to get us to a halachic point that we hold of. Uh, like, uh, what's driving that interpretation? Rashi would be able to help you on that. Um, you know, how did Chazal see, you know, this story? Rashi will be able to help you on that. Um, so, basically what I'm saying is, uh, if you're learning Chumash, your first stop is Rashi. Um, another thing that just came to mind is, like, if I have a problem in a Pasuk, if you, you know, there's something that bothers you in the Pasuk, sometimes just knowing that Rashi comments there and, you know, addresses the question is helpful, whether or not, you know, you actually read it or not. 
it, you know, sometimes Rashi's there to tell you, you're asking good. It's a good question. Let's think about it. Um, so Rashi's extremely important, not just because, uh, you know, he's culturally important, but because he starts a entire movement of biblical commentary. Now, there have been other biblical commentators before him. Uh, Sajagon is one that, uh, you know, I'm skipping over uh, because I'm not as much of, I don't know that much about Sajagon's commentary. I expect to fix that. Sajagon probably has the first one. There's also the Targumim, uh, the Aramaic translations of the Torah, which uh, translation always involves interpretation. Ravraji is really where the movement, the the as I said, as kind of alluded to before, the beginning of seeing the Chumash as an independent text is Rashi. Next time we'll be talking about... Next time we'll be talking about Rashbam. And Rashbam in his commentary says, in Parshat Vayeshev, I forget where, he says, I was talking with my grandfather one day, and... Uh, you know, I told him your commentary should have been more shot, you know, shot oriented. And my grandfather said back to me, "Yeah, you're right. If I had to do it all over again, I would do it more shot oriented. I would do it more like your commentary, Rushbaum." Now it's very convenient for Rushbaum to be saying this because he's saying like my grandfather would have agreed with me. But the important thing to realize here is that the Rushbaum's grandfather was Rashi. And leading into the next uh, episode of this podcast, Rashi has started a process where we're now going to be concerned about Peshat. And Rashbam is going to take it farther than anybody does uh, for a long, long time, probably until the Enlightenment. And that makes Rashbam super fun and also super useful. And we're going to talk about him next week because it's fun. All right. Thank you for listening. And uh, don't forget to uh, support our Patreon if you've got the means to. If I think that this is worth $5 a month uh, you know, to sponsor this kind of stuff. And we plan on doing even more stuff. This is just the beginning. And this podcast is available on a number of podcasting uh, services. We're available on Google Play Music. We're available on... Uh, Apple Music, um, there's a whole list. Uh, I use an app that publishes it to like all the all of them. I get emails every so often. We publish it on another one. So uh, if it's not showing up on your typical on your podcasting thing of choice, let me know. Uh, and I hope you enjoy this podcast and I hope you're looking forward to hearing about the rush bomb. And then after that, the Ibn Ezra because that's going to be real fun.